Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Welcome, everybody. You know, it's interesting. I really don't know why you're here this morning. Do you know why you're here? I'm glad you came, but uh, why did you come? Amen. I'll bet some of you came because you just want to praise the Lord and you want to worship. Some of you probably came because it's habit. It's your Sunday morning habit, right? Okay, this is what I always do. I'm going to come. Or maybe you came because you serve in a ministry here. Or you like the social aspect of it. There's a number of reasons why we come. But I'll bet none of you came here this morning expecting me to hear me tell you exactly when you were selected for salvation. Before this message is done, I will have detailed when each one of you individually was chosen for salvation. And every single person each is unique individual, was appointed by God for salvation at a certain point, and I will discern for you when that was. And the cool thing is, I will show how you too can pinpoint the time every believer was elected for salvation as well. You will walk out of here with that knowledge and, and the tools to do that kind of feels like an infomercial. That's right, all for the low, low price of 1995. You can have those tools too. But it's free, that's right. Um, it is true that when we're done today, you will know the time that God chose salvation for each one of us. And this knowledge should give you immense encouragement, it should give you confidence and assurance of your eternal future. And so, to start, I want you to remember this. It's God's plan, not ours. Remember that. It's God's plan, not ours. It was just a few months ago that I came across a Bible scholar's message about a passage of Scripture, and his words stunned me because I had read this Scripture before, but I had never considered them the way he uh, had had brought them, and it's an awesome thing. And so I want to share that with you today, and that's why Rob had set it up the way he did. This has been on my heart for, for months now. And, um, and he was speaking about the book of Ephesians, and this is Paul's uh, really exciting letter to the believers in the Roman Empire city of Ephesus, and when this scholar came across Ephesians 1.4, he became especially animated. And the verse says in part that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, this scholar, he said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but what he said is this means that before anything was here, before God made the sky, 
or the atmosphere or the ground we walk on or the oceans or the seas, the stars we see at night, you were in God's mind. As, think about it as Noah walked the earth and as it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and the entire globe flooded, you were in God's mind. When, when Jesus, the only Son of God, lowered himself to come to take on flesh and bones, you were in God's mind. When Jesus was humiliated and went to the cross for us and died and was buried and resurrected, you were in God's mind. And as the next 2,000 years have unfolded, you were in God's mind. And you still are in God's mind. Every day, day by day, you will be tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that, whether here on earth or face to face with him. I cannot fathom that. I cannot fathom that aspect because I have a finite mind. But Ephesians 1.4 makes this statement. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He, is God the Father, chose us, individual believers, in him, Christ, before he made anything else. Well, why? That we should be saved from sin. That we should be able to stand before him on the day of judgment and be found holy and blameless. That we should know a salvation that he gave us that is too grand for our words before any of us could do the slightest thing to take credit for it. It's God's plan, not ours. Now, the early part of Ephesians 1 is just a tremendous piece of Scripture, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 14. It's actually all one sentence, if you will. Um, it just it gushes with praise and adoration uh, for God, and it's overflowing with profound truths of God. Uh, it was just all one utterance of Paul. He, he most likely was just so overwhelmed that he just couldn't stop. He just go. He was going and going and going. Well, for our translations, we actually break it up into into individual sentences, um, and so I want to zero in on on this one, um, verse four, because I believe it holds immense promise for us. It it grounds us in the truth of God's awesome sovereignty. And it reassures us that the source of our standing before God is God. It's not this unstable world. Ephesians 1.4 shows us where we have been and where we are going. We were in his mind before the foundation of the world was created. And we are in his grace and mercy today and every day. And we will be until Christ comes back to bring his believers into the new heavens and the new earth. Wow, where would I rather be than knowing that I am in his grace and his mercy every day? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, thank you. Now, there are some profound truths that we take away from this verse. There are many, and 
many others in Scripture that confirm them, but I want to just go through a few that emerge from here. And they should be on your screen. It's pretty small. I don't know if you can read them, but God gets the glory, not us. That's important. God gets the glory, not us. His choices are not by chance. God's love is on display for all time. All time, God's love love is on display. God's plan always comes to pass. Salvation is sure. That's important. Salvation is sure. God knows you because he chose you and then formed you. You are not an accident. God's plan to redeem man from sin and death is not an arbitrary decision or a reaction to his original plan that failed, but it was something that God planned all along. God was determined to have his chosen chosen people as his own. Jesus Christ was determined before the foundation of the world to be the sacrifice for sins. God pre-thought and predetermined, or we would say predestined, each Christian's salvation. God chose us by himself and for himself, according to the Greek form of the verb behind the word chose, and we have become eternally united with Christ, independent of human influence and apart from any human merit. So you may say then, I have no responsibility in this deal. I don't have to do anything. If God did it all and cast it in stones eons ago before the cells of my brain and the cells of my heart were even formed, hey, it's not my deal. Well, I would say not so fast. You don't get out of it that easily. John MacArthur put it this way. He says, God's choice does not nullify or operate apart from man's responsibility to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we are responsible for believing in Christ for salvation. We are responsible for our decisions and choices. Just because God chose us doesn't mean that we get a pass. We don't get to be lazy and just say, well... Hey, I know God chose me. He'll bring me to faith on the last day, so I'm just going to kind of do whatever I want. doesn't matter what I do or say or act. Nope. It absolutely matters. Look at Jesus' first words as he begins his ministry on earth. His first words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in Matthew 4.17. He calls us to repent. We have to take action. We have a responsibility to respond to him. He addresses in John 5 people who read things about God, who even read the scriptures that bear witness of God, and they may intellectually agree with them, but they, quote, refuse to come to me that you may have life, it says in John 5.40. So people have a will, and that will has a responsibility to respond to God's choosing, no matter when it happens. Joshua famously declared this to the Israelites as he was leading them, and this people were at times drawn to worship the pagan gods of other people in the land. 
the non-Israelites. So Joshua gathered them uh, near the end of his life and gathered all the Israelites together, and he gave them a final message. And near its closing, he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, why would he say that if God had already chosen certain people and not others? Why would Joshua say that? Choose life, choose God, choose, choose, choose. Joshua was making that point. There is a choice that God expects us to render. And Joshua declares this just as Jesus declares this. And what's kind of interesting is in that, in the book of Joshua, he declares this even as he is telling them in that, during that speech, if you will, during that message, 28 times he tells them that it's God who chose to protect them, God who chose to save them, God who chose to give them victory. It was God's work, not man's works, that preserved and prospered the Israelites. And Joshua understood that fully. And yet, the last thing he wants to declare in that message is that the people must choose their God. Hmm. So we come back to Ephesians 1.4. And it says plainly and clearly that God chooses us. And he chooses before the foundation of the world was created. If it's God's choice and we have nothing to do with it, and nothing can thwart his will, and he is all-powerful and all-capable and totally perfect, and it's all part of his grand plan, then how can we be responsible for anything having to do with our salvation? For who can resist his will? These two things seem to be opposite. Well, they, they don't fit together properly. We understand that. In our way of thinking, they both can't be true. God can't choose us, and then we, we're responsible for... How does that work? If one is true and the other isn't. If it's God's choice, it can't be ours. So say you and your spouse, you want to go out to eat. One spouse chooses, wants to go to this place. The other one wants to go here. And you wind up at one of those two places. That was one of your choices. It wasn't the other one. But in God's economy, it doesn't work that way. Uh, in God's way of doing things, both can be true. Both can fit together. And both are true. According to Scripture, God chooses us for salvation before the foundation of the world. And at the same time, we bear responsibility for our choices. I don't have to understand it all. I don't have to be able to make perfect sense of it. I don't have to be able to explain the mystery of how this is. I stand on God's word that it is, that both are true. And this is one of the great things of Scripture that really brings us to our knees. It forces us to acknowledge that God's wisdom is not our wisdom. God's ways are not our ways. God's mind is not our mind. He has given us His Word to bear witness to Him, to bring us to a knowledge of Him who is perfect and holy and just and still loves the sinners that we are. He has revealed Himself in Scripture, and we dare not define for God who God is. God defines for God. 
who he is. We can accept this truth or reject this truth, and in so doing, we accept him or we reject him. I believe in this doctrine of God's sovereign choice to bring salvation to those whom he chooses because his word exclaims this over and over again. From the pages of the Old Testament to the end of the book of Revelation, God showers us with the truth of his election of specific people to be saved. I also believe people's choices matter and have real consequences because God's words exclaim this over and over from the pages of the Old Testament through the book of Revelation. John Calvin writes of God's election, to find fault with this, to raise a fist at the Almighty and question His right to do it, as the Bible predicts some doing, is decidedly unwise. So we'll look a little later at what God has to say about those who question His right to election. We don't have nearly, nearly enough time here this morning uh, to do justice to this doctrine, nor is it my goal today to do an in-depth study of the doctrine uh, of election, but Ephesians 1.4 illuminates for us a truth that is our duty to understand in light of the whole counsel of God. And clearly, God elects some for salvation. For us believers, this is immense comfort and reassurance, and that's what we should take from Ephesians 1.4. Remember, it's God's plan, not ours. So let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy. This is one of the first five books of the Old Testament that form the Pentateuch or the Torah. These are foundational instructions and, and law-giving words for the Jews, but also hold great truths for us. We're going to go to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, God details his role with the Israelites. We're going to start in verse 6. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, we read, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That is crystal clear. God chose the Israelites, not the other way around. And God goes further in showing how it was solely his work in the choosing. Look at that next passage, the next two verses, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Again, talking about the Israelites. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, it was not anything the Israelites did to deserve to be saved. They weren't any better or worse than any other people at the time. They weren't super talented or more intelligent or more deserving, more noble. They obviously weren't the largest population. They weren't even more well-behaved. They were a stiff-necked, rebellious people. Nor did they do everything right, nor earn, earn the most brownie points in the Israelite brownie system. No, it was because, why? God loved them and God chose them, pure and simple. And this should make us feel pretty good 
okay, I don't have to do this many times at church or do that many prayers or do this or that. God chose me because He chose to. Nothing I do or say can erase that fact. We can stand on that. That's bedrock truth. This, is, this passage is God's sovereign, unconditional election on full display. And yet, very quickly, God reveals that the Israelites do play a role. Look at the very next verse, verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And again in verse 11, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Hmm, that sounds very conditional. As though people are only blessed by God if they have a certain, a certain way, if they behave a certain way. And even more so in verse 12, where it says, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. Uh-oh. The Calvinist unconditional election crowd is about to balk. Because they know that the Bible also says there is nothing within us that seeks God. There is no one who seeks after Him. No one is righteous. No, not one. Our hearts are only evil all the time. All of our best works are as filthy rags. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so on and so on. They point to Isaiah 45, 14 where the prophet writes, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. And Jesus himself affirms this multiple times in the Gospels, especially in the book of John, where Jesus is recorded as saying, No one can come to me unless the Father, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And can Jesus be any more blunt than when he tells the disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you. Okay, so God chooses people for salvation. And somehow people's choices matter. And we see this tension throughout Scripture. And we have to let this tension exist. For God does not resolve it for us in the way that we think. We must accept both to be true if we are to be faithful to the teaching of all the Scriptures. But isn't there an unfairness about election? It tells us that God elects to save some, but not all is the implication. That means that God is deciding that some people are destined for eternal torment in hell. How can this be fair? Well, the answer is that we don't get to decide what is fair or not fair with God's creation. Theologian Wayne Grudem points out that it would be perfectly fair for God not to save anyone, just as he did with the angels. Pastor Rob, he, he covered this earlier this year when he taught through 2 Peter in chapter 2, where it says in verse 4, 
God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Therefore, if angels' sin condemns them, the stain of sin in human beings certainly would condemn them as well. It would be fair for God to do with us as he did with the angels, which is to save none of those who sin and rebel against him. No one has the right to be saved. But God's willingness to save even one sinner is an incredible demonstration of his endless grace. This grace goes far beyond the requirements of fairness and justice, is the way Grudem puts it. So I told you earlier that we would look at what God says to those who question God's right to election. So turn in your Bibles now to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. Here Paul reminds believers of God's saving promises to Israel. And he lands on the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 10, Paul writes, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose Jacob for salvation and not Esau before they were born and had done anything. God knows that people will question this. God knows people will have a hard time with this. In fact, he anticipates their questioning. Look at verse 14 in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. And again in verse 19, dropping down, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You see, just as with all things in the Bible, we are challenged to believe them as God has revealed them to us. We do come to the pages of Scripture with all of our peculiar personalities, with all of our desires, unique motives. We also bring our stubbornness and our pride and our ignorance and our human limitations. Then we tend to try to fit God's Word into our molds. This is an injustice to the profound revelation from a holy God to a sinful people. I would ask you, wouldn't it be more honest and a more true reading of the text to try to see it God's way? What does God intend this to mean? What does God convey here? As Rob and Dustin have shown us repeatedly through the years, There is an honest way to approach Scripture 
And that is by understanding the whole counsel of God, understanding the context, what is coming before this passage, what is coming afterward, who is doing the writing, what is the culture at the time, uh, what's the style of writing, is it historical or is it poetry or, or, or just what? What does the rest of Scripture say and so on? So let's take what God says and believe it on the basis of what he has revealed to us, not what we wish it to be. And as we discover, God's word undoubtedly declares his election of people for salvation and man's responsibility to receive this gift and live it out. Now I'm going to explain a little bit about how this plays out. And I want you to, to stay with me here because it has three main parts. There's the plan of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation, and the application of salvation. I know this is kind of starting to get a little bit uh, academic here, but let's, let's stay with it. As we have covered, the plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, took place before the foundation of the world. And what is his plan or was his plan? Well, it's to send Jesus Christ to earth to sacrifice himself for our sins and be resurrected to eternal life. That was how God accomplished salvation. And then he applies it to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, put another way, the elect were chosen in Christ to be saved before the foundation of the world, but their salvation was not accomplished until Christ did, the, did his work and then each individual's salvation was not applied until he or she was converted and their faith was placed in Christ. Author John Flavel writes, The Father has elected and the Son has redeemed, but until the Spirit has done His part also, we cannot be saved. For He comes in the Father's and in the Son's name and authority to complete the work of our salvation by bringing all the fruits of election and redemption home to our souls. Hmm. So what is our role? Well, our role is to confirm our election by living our lives for God, by enduring suffering for Christ's sake, by taking every opportunity to share the gospel, even when we're criticized for it or persecuted for it. Jesus told the apostles in Matthew 10, 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so what do we make of all this? Well, my fellow Christians, I told you this should bring us immense comfort and encouragement. The choice to save is not in our hands, which is a good thing because we tend to make a mess of things <laughs> when they're put in our hands. But being chosen for salvation is in the hands of God, who is perfect and never commits an error. Again, Wayne Grudem, he writes an ex, uh, he has an excellent, excellent systematic theology. I encourage you to avail yourselves of his systematic theology. And he goes through all the New Testament teaching on the doctrine of election and concludes that it is given to us for specific reasons. He says we are chosen to give us comfort, 
so we will praise him and to encourage us to evangelize. So let's explain these briefly. The comfort. We're chosen to give us comfort. And Paul tells the Roman believers in Romans 8.28 that familiar and famous verse, famous piece of Scripture. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And the reason that they can know this and be assured of this is because of God's election or predestination, as Paul writes in the very next verse. Look at verse 29. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So Paul is laying out here that God has always acted and always will act for the good of those whom He chooses. This is true way back in the distant past, in the near past, in the present, and in the future. In the near future, even in the distant future. And forever. Grudem writes, but if God has always acted for our good and will in the future act for our good, Paul reasons then that Will He not also in our present circumstances work every circumstance together for our good as well? That's a perfectly logical conclusion. This is how God has always worked. He's promised to always work this way. And He always keeps His promises. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this brings us enormous comfort in the everyday events of life that we think are are going haywire. So that's the comfort that this doctrine brings. Praise. This first section of Ephesians is chock full of God's election and praise for His election. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, we are predestined for adoption as God's children to the praise of His glorious grace. And in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And in verse 14, the chosen are guaranteed to inherit God's promise of salvation to the praise of His glory. Paul himself, we recall, is a dramatic example of the doctrine of election. It shows that Christianity, in choosing God, choosing Paul, was an act of pure mercy. I mean, he was, you think about what he was doing. He was hell-bent on destroying Christians. He wanted to destroy Christianity. He wanted to defeat it in every way. He was torturing Christians. He was uh, assenting and, and leading them to death, to put them to death, their executions. He was traveling great distance to do this. And right in the midst of this, Paul instantly turned into the Great Christian, the great Christian persecutor turned into the great Christian brother that we can call a brother in Christ. Which is why he went on to praise God so fervently over his doctrine of election. Uh, his writing in 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you. He's talking to his fellow Christians. And why does he and, and his co-missionaries give thanks for the Christian believers? Well, he tells us in verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. This is Paul. 
He emphasizes it even more clearly in his second letter to this same group of believers in Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you to be saved. Notice how they are obligated to praise God for saving the believers. They are not praising the believers for, for their faith. The praise is always to God for choosing them for salvation. And, and Grudem adds to this, the doctrine of election does increase praise given to God for our salvation. And it seriously diminishes any pride that we might feel if we thought that our salvation was due to something good in us or something that, for which we should receive credit. That's well said. And then the third, uh, third thing it brings us is should motivate us for evangelism. Uh, which you might think that that's not the case. You might think that it's the other way, that it would kind of squelch evangelism if, if we think, well, it's God choosing. Why do we need to, to do this? Um, well, it's actually why, why sharing the gospel is so, with others is so important and actually fulfilling and rewarding and thrilling because this means that God has already selected believers who are ready to come to him. And he uses us to facilitate the message of salvation. We don't know who the people are, but we know God has selected them. We simply need to share with as many as we can. And in so doing, we lead people to the foot of the cross. We know that's going to happen. Because God has chosen that. I mean, what joy that God would enable us to participate with him in a plan that he has put into place before the foundation of the world. And we are to do it zealously. For Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Election. It's the guarantee that there will be some success for evangelism. That was Paul's guarantee that there would be some success. He knows some of those people he speaks to will be the elect and will believe and be saved. That's awesome. So in closing, there is much, much, much more uh, to this beautiful concept of God's election uh, than we've just touched on today and begun to explore. I encourage you to, to just dive deeply into it. Just drink it in. Um, God's declaration in Ephesians 1.4 assures us that our salvation is secured by God and for His good pleasure. Just dwell on that. Consider what that means for us and for all believers, and for people that you're going to share the gospel with. And it is done solely because he loves you, despite your faults. Remember, it's God's plan, not ours. And I will close with this, a statement by English pastor Jeff Thomas, who says, if you are a Christian today, you owe it to election. 
If you are adopted into the family of God today, you owe it to God's selection. If your sins are forgiven today and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you owe it to the divine decision. If you are going to heaven to spend eternity with Jesus Christ, you owe it to election. So, when were you chosen to be saved? When are all Christians chosen to be saved? Before the foundation of the world. It's God's plan, not ours. So would you please bow your heads as the worship team comes up. Bow your heads as we close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may we bless you for your great and grand promises, for you called us to be your own, chosen from the foundation of the world, completed at the cross by the work of your Son, Jesus, and applied to us by your Holy Spirit. We can take no credit for it, for it's by your grace that we have been saved, not by our works. And so we are called to live out this gift of faith that you have so graciously bestowed upon us and endure to the end. So we bow in humble worship of you who would have such a great love for us to call us your children. May we honor you in all that we say and think and do. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.